it, folks. Our summer series is coming to an end. Um, I don't. If you guys are missing outlines, let me know, and I'll make sure that we'll have Michelle get get the classes that you missed. Because if you have the outlines, you're going to have a nice handle on things in this class. And that's part of the purpose of this class. Um, and also, Lord willing, coming into the fall, what I really want to do is give give you guys um, just encouragement in, in Scripture to hold fast to the truth. Because what we're teaching now, these are, these are like uh, people coming against us to shake our faith. They're not just saying, oh, you guys believe in myths or... The arguments are a little more sophisticated, very emotional, and um, the idea is they want want us to lose confidence, like in the Word of God, or feel badly about what we believe um, in terms of you know what the Bible teaches in, in this regard. And, and so, uh, the doctrine of hell was one of those. And so, that, with this class, this is the only one. If you guys have your outlines. Pay attention a little bit to what we've been teaching. You'll have a nice handle and be able to have good conversations with people that have objections towards it, right? You know, so because like even the first week we talked about, we set the groundwork. Like who's able to judge the world? Like who's qualified to judge every single person? So we looked at the nature of God, the attributes of God for the first couple of weeks, and we talked about that. And we talked about how can a loving God send anybody to hell? That was real important class. If you to understand the notes and understand who we are in relation to God, it begins to make sense. At least it gives a good answer for people to at least wrestle with, even if they don't want to believe. Because you don't want to be left speechless and just like, I don't know why, you know, maybe maybe hell was a bad idea, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then we talked about what does loving Jesus, and we and that's really really important because, again, all scriptures God breathed profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. But it's Jesus who teaches, loving Jesus. You know, a lot of people today say, oh, I hate the God of the Old Testament. I love Jesus of the New Testament. That's misguided. It's very wrong on so many levels. But here's loving Jesus talking more about hell than anybody in Scripture. You know, so if you don't believe what Jesus teaches about hell, then you don't believe Jesus. And there's, you can't say, well, I like Jesus, but not Paul or whatever. That kind of thing. So, uh, real important class. And then last week we we started considering the objections, and we're just looking at two, two of the biggest one. And and last week we t- is hell eternal? Because then there'll be people that'll say, um, okay, I got you. Hell's a place. It's real. People go there, but they're only there for a certain finite amount of time, and then there'll be poof out of existence. Again, very nice thought, I guess, in some ways. But we talked about, we looked at that objection last week, and I think it's undeniable that hell is eternal based on what we have. So these are good handles as people talking to people. You always want to be very gentle, gracious. We're not trying to win arguments per se or like slam people, but just keep bringing them back gently to the scriptures, gently without losing it or trying to go off on your own. Always come back and be anchored in the word um, with, with all gentleness, patience, grace, Praying for them, not getting upset, and all that, all that kind of thing, because this is a very emotional um, subject for sure. And tonight, um, our last one, we're going to consider another objection. And again, on the surface, it, it sounds really great, I guess, <laughs> not to me, but you know, it's, 
Would it be nice if everybody's saved? And that's that's another objection to uh, hell itself. Is hell empty? Is is um, will every single person be saved? And the problem is, it's not just you know unbelieving Mr. Jones across the street. It's professing Christians, especially in, in a growing um, group of what's called progressive Christians. They never had really deep doctrinal teaching. Church was just lottie dotty fun and, you know, oh, we're just going to you know, sing and have cool. Jesus is cool and all right. And so there's never a real grounding in scripture. And so they really weren't necessarily taught these these doctrines and have them in their heart. So it's easy to get caught off guard or drift away. It's a very common, very common tale, especially in our day and age. Ask anybody, especially younger Christians. They'll, they're not going to know much about what we're talking about here. So. That's why we want to do this, to make sure. Um, and then just move, looking ahead a little bit, Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to kind of continue in this series because another area where, again, sophisticated arguments to get to undermine your faith so that you don't believe that this is the word of God. Because if they can undermine this, then they got you. You know what I mean? That's it. If they, if they could get to question the scripture, the teaching of the scripture, the very reliability of the scripture, you know, is this God's word, then that, that rocks a lot of people in the world. And so next time we're going to consider um, the what's called biblical criticism. In other words, how do we know that, you know, these are the actual words of scripture? You know, isn't you're going to have people say to you, um, how, how could you be sure that you're holding the Bible in your hand when we don't have originals, like we don't have the autographed copies, but we have copies of copies. You know, how can we get back to the originals? Um, how, how could you know when there's so many mistakes? You know, there are more mistakes, or variants is what they're called, in, in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. So how do we explain that? That's like, it's very challenging. There's a man named Bart Ehrman. He's a, a scholar, professor, was a professing Christian. This was his field. Now he's on the other side. He teaches at University of North Carolina. And many, many, many Christian kids go to his class. They come out not believing or their faith shaken and rocked because of that. So I mean, really important class in that way. And then also, uh, in, in addition to that, we'll talk about canon. How did, you know, how do we know which books belong in the Bible? How do we know that? You know, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Our son Will is a flight attendant. There was a person challenging him on these very things. I've had talks with Will about this stuff, so he was able to give answers, solid answers. Uh, they were going back and forth a little bit, but you know, she was saying, you know, "How could you trust what's being? How could you trust that? You know, that's they don't have the copies. They're, they're, they don't have the originals. And how do you know that Paul really said that or even wrote that?" And you know, Will was explaining to her. And then she said, well, what about other Gospels? What about the Gospel of Thomas? How come that's not in the Bible, but you have Matthew in there? So it's it's real, real challenging for us. So we at least want to have a pretty good idea of like how to counter those and you know speak to those speak to those things um, as we're witnessing, as we're out there in the world. These are more and more kinds of questions we're going to get. And so that's kind of why we're doing this and moving forward with this. So um, tonight we'll consider universalism. Shouldn't be too long, I think. I don't know. We are going to look at passages in Scripture, so don't be fooled necessarily by the short outline, but we'll see how it goes. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much, Lord. Thank you for the commitment of, of these people, Lord, to take time out on a Thursday night to come out to study uh, your word, Lord God. And I just, I really do pray 
that this helps uh, give us even greater assurance of our faith, that we can trust you, Lord, trust your word, trust the teachings of your word, Lord God, and and really um, be able to, to, to have confidence in that, Lord, especially as we're talking to other people, as we're witnessing to them, as we're seeking to answer certain objections, Lord God, and, and obviously praying that you'll change their hearts, but we are told to be able, that we need to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with all gentleness and kindness, Lord God. So please help us in that way. Help us to appreciate your teaching and to stand fast and to hold firmly, Lord, onto your precious word. There's a lot of pressure uh, to abandon these teachings, um, to, to do away with them because they're seemingly so harsh or you know, so difficult in different ways. So help us to, to remain faithful and true to you and to your precious word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, universalism. My first year, don't you just want to laugh? Like, you know, there's that universalist church on Mount, in Mount Lebanon, you know, and it's like, they believe everything. Like, they, I think they have funeral for trees. I'm not kidding. Am I kidding? No, they have, like, that's crazy. That's crazy. You know, you, but, yeah, it's right on Washington. Right on the main. Right, right on the main. Right on Washington Road as you're going up there. Univer, universalists, in the, you know. Yeah, it. Um, they had to rape those stuff up the last time I They still did. They still did. Yeah. I had a professor when I went back to school at Harvard <laughs> that she was a member of that church. Oh, wow. And it, this was in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were gays in the church, and she said they are better parents than some of the other people. Um, they would have guest people come in and speak, and she brought the hymnal from their church because it was universal. Yeah, It wasn't yeah. about God. It was. They had a hymn to nature, to, to, to trees they, and flowers. Trees and flowers, trees and nature. Trees and flowers. It's, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's all kind. Of, it's a mixed bag in what you get, you know. Like there's variations within this, but that's the idea. They don't think much of Jesus. They really believe he's just a man, you know, and not like they emphasize his human nature. But what they love to do, with so many of the aberrant teachings and the false teachers like to do, is is just take scripture out of context. And and so you could, if you read it, if I have an idea of what I want to believe, you can always find scripture to back that up. And that's why we want to take, I mean, really, it's, this is like the hell is a hard teaching. Like who wants to teach that, right? But that's what the Bible teaches. So we have to do that. Like like the Trinity and other, other difficult, you know, predestination. <laughs> Although I didn't get too many punches this week. I got pretty good, pretty good responses back for this week's sermon. It wasn't too bad. But all those kinds of things are, you know, they're, they're difficult because they're hard teachings. They're hard to grasp conceptually in different ways and trying to understand. You know, if God is totally sovereign and we do make free choices, how does that work? You know, His sovereignty and our, our free response, our responsibility, our freedom. So these things are, are hard. Um, so you almost could try to water them down, and, and then there's enough people that will listen to to these things. But but why why can't we compromise, not simply because it's the word of God, but beyond that, as you think about people, why is it so important that we have classes like this and that we're that we that we do not compromise on the word? Why is that? Why can't we? Why ought we not to? 
What's at stake? Come on, spoon me here. <laughs> absolute truth. Absolute truth. And apart from absolute truth, where are people going to end up? Right here, what we're talking about. So is the most loving thing we can do is actually speak the truth. But when you do that, you know, paradoxically, or you're going to be hated for that. That's why they hated Jesus, because he spoke the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's, and it's hard, because we don't like that. We don't want to be thought of in that way. And it's never an excuse for us to be mean, angry, hurtful, walking away. It doesn't matter what people do to us. Nothing in this life matters what they do to us. So we never want to get to the point where we say, well, I'm done with you. You know, I'm, I'm always here for you to, to, to preach the gospel. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they might be done with you, but I'm always here for you. You understand? Okay. All right. So what is universalism? Simple. Um, God will ultimately save every single person who has ever, who will ever exist from all time periods without exception. Doesn't matter. Right away, like the the Michael, like Hitler, yes, Hitler. How can that be? No matter what people do in this life, how good or evil they may be, God's love will ultimately drive all people to Himself. So, some universalists may believe in a concept of hell that's kind of corrective, purifying, almost like a purgatory type of thing. Yeah, but a lot of them are straight up. You know, God's love overcomes everything. And when people die, they're going to realize how loving God is and they're going to be in awe of him. That's kind of the idea. And, you know, whether they're repentant or not, you know, the idea of feeling remorse, because once you know what you've done, oh, my gosh, you know. And so God is going to look on that and, and love you. So it's been around forever, different forms, different variations on universalism, all the way back to 150 A.D., uh, Clement of Alexandria. Early was an early proponent of this. Um, it's a little debatable how far he went. Origen, uh, 185 to 254, he held to a form of universalism, said the restoration of all things, you know, Acts 3, 19, uh, full repentance will be granted to people. It was declared heresy. I don't know why the church loves Origen. I don't know. I'm just, I'm down yeah, on Origen. Yeah, some stuff. Funny, but that's how they grew. Yeah. But they learn, you learn in bits and pieces as we go through the ages. Yeah. Coming into art, you know, like the 18th, 19th, or 19th, 20th century, uh, liberal theologians, like, so the PCUSA, that's a denomination that went very liberal, especially around the 1920s, earlier than that, but especially in the 20s. And you have very popular the theologians at the head of that, like, um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the German guys, Emil Brunner, uh, Karl Barth. Um, Schleiermacher was, he said, all men, see, they were Presbyterian, so you would think that they would be like kind of reformed, but they weren't. They were very liberal. So Schleiermacher said, all men are elected to salvation. So he used like election. He used kind of Presbyterian reform terminology, but totally uh, filled it with false teaching. Uh, John A.T. Robinson said Christ remains on the cross so long as one sinner remains in hell. And he kind of borrowed that from Origen, actually. Uh, he, he went on to say, No heaven can tolerate a, a chamber of horrors. It's inconsistent with the love of God. So what basically universalists will do is they place God's love as his overriding attribute. His dominant attribute, his love, 
shapes all the other attributes and they'll be subordinate to, to his love. So love over justice. Now what we say is no, God's love, he loves his justice. That's why he's just. It's, you know, when, when a sinner is rightly punished, that's God's love for justice, holiness, and righteousness. You know, that it's right in that way. The other side says, no, 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 love, those other things are subordinate to, to God's love. You know, God's love overcomes even his justice, even his holiness, even his righteousness. That's kind of the crux of the matter. That's, that's the issue there. You know, instead of allowing God's love to be defined in his actions, they redefine it. Obviously. And, and again, I don't know, I don't want to question the motives necessarily, because I think people really want that. Don't, you know, you want, you want people to feel good. You know, like, you don't want to be the bad guy. You want people to have some hope that they'll be in heaven. You know, so you can see that in some of the temptation in, in any way. But um, even, even guys today, how many of you heard of Rob Bell? Rob Bell? Yeah. Love wins. And, you know, he was really popular in the nine, late, late 90s, early 2000s in evangelicalism. People were loving him. Church was growing, growing. He's way off. Like, he's Oprah. He, he and Oprah are good friends. But definitely his love wins. And but these are smart guys. And they're very intelligent and articulate. And they have a heart. And they, they have the... They'll bring scripture to bear. But again, what they do is they take it out of context and they just borrow the language without the substance behind it. That's why we're going to look at a few passages tonight, just so you see that. Um, they demand that true love ensures that all people everywhere ultimately will be saved. It's deeply, deeply sentimental. You know, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He's in um, 1 Timothy 2, that all men will be saved. Those kinds of things. I wrote down, they have over a hundred Bible passages. And they'll just come with these passages and try to overwhelm and say, look, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Or, I, I wrote eight or nine down, but I'm not. I don't necessarily. We're going to be looking at four passages tonight. But uh, 1 John 2, 2, God is love. Um, Titus 2, 11, he's redeemed the people. Again, 1 Timothy 2.4. On and on it goes. Anywhere it says that God love all. Just about any passage it says that. That's where, you know, God so loved the world. He loved the world. He loves everybody in the world. You know, so if you're not sharp, if you're not, if you don't know the scripture, it could throw you off a little bit. That's why we want to sharpen our skills. Because all these passages, when you look at them in context, does not does not speak to universal universal salvation in that way but they have an air of that right we're a church we love god you know we'll say that and just you know all these these kinds of things they'll read scripture very syncretistic in different ways um the truth is he doesn't work merely in love to the exclusion of his other attributes when one is condemned to hell it's praise of his glorious justice it's the love of his justice as i said earlier it's the love of his holiness the love of his righteousness he is all of his divine attributes equally at all times at the same time. Okay? Um, so, with that, real quick, I just want to consider a few passages that will say, look, God is love, and therefore he loves everybody, and everybody will be saved. 
And then they'll point to passages and say, see, these are all passages where he wants all men to be saved. So why wouldn't a loving God eventually save everybody? But if you just think about it on the surface, it doesn't make sense, does it? Like there would be no justice for any sinner and the most wicked sinners that we talked about the very first time. You know, like who, like think of the worst person you can think of who's committed these crimes and, you know, these heinous things. No, they're in heaven now. They could be if they repented, even at the last moment. That would be fantastic. But so let's look at a couple passages. If you have your Bible, let's go to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4. And this is a passage that really speaks like, you know, here's God. He's a God of love. He's not a God of hate. He's not a God who's going to send people to a bad place. It's kind of the idea off of this, uh, what they'll be teaching. But if you take a little deeper look into the passage in its context, it it's not what they are actually teaching. So 1 John chapter 4, and I'm probably going to read... Um, all the way from uh, 1 to 18. Let's just read that so we get the context. Now, Paul is talking to two Christians and he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us not let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because of love because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So I'll just we could just stop right there at that point. But... What the universalists will do, kind of look, they'll kind of look at verse 8 and say anyone, um, I'm sorry, verse 9, I'm sorry, the end of verse 8, anyone who does not know love does not know God because God is love. And then down in, in verse uh, 16 when, when he says, so we've come to know and believe that the love of God, that the love, 
the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So this is a real important passage for universalists because they'll say, this is God is love. See, God is love. How can a loving God send anybody to hell ultimately? Won't everybody be saved? But there's a little bit of a problem with that, right? Because look at the context. First of all, who's John writing to? He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church, first of all. And he's warning them against false teaching. It's a warning to those who do not love God, right? Or or other, or other neighbor as they ought to. Um, and it's, it shows that they're not in Christ. So it, this this can't teach universal, universalism because it, like it's teaching the opposite of that. When you actually read it, if you don't love God, if you don't know God, you're under his judgment. That's what it's saying. It's like he's not saying that, you know, yes, God is love. That's true. But you have to love him. Right. Because he's also just and righteous. And so he's warning people. He's, it's a warning to those who do not love him. Who don't love God. That's what this is. He's encouraging true Christians. Look, if you're really a Christian, you're going to love God. And you're going to love others. And you're going to, that's going to come forth in your life. If you're not living like that, then it doesn't matter what you say. You don't love God. And you're going to be judged by him. That's the whole idea. So, and if, it's, if there's no consequence to our sin, why even kind of have this byplay, this warning? This is love. You know, this is, if you don't do this, then it means you don't love him. Why even make a distinction between true and false believers? That's kind of the question you have to ask. Because people will point to these passages and say, God is love. But God is love. Love wins. Well, we have to talk about that a little bit more. So if you get into conversations and they bring you to this passage, that the whole idea is kind of just the opposite of universalism. There's definitely a distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who love God, those who don't love God. If they're not in Christ... He should fear God in the day of judgment. You know, that's that's a big idea. So those who teach other than the need to love God and neighbor are false teachers. As false teachers, they should be afraid of God's judgment. So this is a real popular passage, but because they only take a little portion of it. God's love. Love wins. Love is going to win out of the end. Of course. That's the big... That's the big, yeah, bigger than you. But you know what? They're all together. So when we went to um, the gay pride parade in Mount Lebanon, they had, it wasn't the Universalist Church, but it was the Methodist Church. But that's, that's it's all the same idea. They're all, it, they've all kind of come around this God is love, therefore God accepts us as we are. Good old Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers theology finally. Do you know that Mr. Rogers and R.C. Sproul went to the same seminary. They were a little bit behind each other, you know that? And they knew each other. And, you know, I think Arsenal was like Fred Rogers, but that this was this is kind of the, the end. Because this is where, if you logically follow Mr. Rogers' theology, this is where you get. You're fine just the way you are. God loves you just the way you are. So it doesn't matter. There's no need. So R.C. Sproul's teaching, no, you need to believe and trust in Christ for repent of sins. You know, we're done. And so, you know, it's so, but Mr. Rogers, that's sweet. Who, you know, I don't know. Who, overall, who's more popular, right? Mr. Rogers. But he was a Presbyterian minister. Um, they were in the same denomination. R.C. eventually left that denomination. 
but but that that this is the fruition of that. So that cute little show. I love Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and there's a lot of good lessons. Loving your neighbor, hi neighbor, you know all those good things on a certain moralistic level. But but down deep, this is where this is the end point of that. So you have all the conglomerates, all the transgender pride. Everything comes back to love, God's love, 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 love wins. But they're mischaracterizing it, and they'll use passages like this: "Isn't God love?" The Bible says God is love. Well, let's talk about that. Let's put it in context. If they're willing to have conversations with you, because usually it's just the opposite. So that's the the grounding there. But understand that it, it's you know. John is teaching just the opposite. <laughs> if you're not loving God, then you're you're not of Him. You know, you're going to come under judgment. So, it's a, examine yourself in that way. So that's one passage. Um, it comes to Second Peter. This is one of the all passages. It's a universalist passage in that way. And again, I'm telling you that they could. I was looking it up, looking at their material. Like here's 75 Bible verses that teach universalism. So they just bombard you with passages. What about this? What about that? So 2 Peter um, 3, chapter 3, and verse 9 is the key verse, but we'll read, again, we'll get it in the context of 2 Peter. So people say, let's see where my eye Okay, so he's talking about the, this is the day, um, God's day is going to come, and he writes this. This is now the second letter that I've written, beginning verse 1, um, that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that heaven existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's the main verse. Um, the day the Lord will come like a thief in the night, everything will pass away, so on and so forth. So a universalist will say, look, look at verse 9, guys. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. That's towards everybody, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to have life. That's that's what he's hoping for. He's, he's a universalist, so he doesn't want anybody to perish. And if he's God, nobody's going to perish. And again, they have, there can be very sophisticated arguments, or seemingly, at least on the surface, it could trip you up if, if you're not certain about the word. Um, so again, here's what you want to do, and here's what we need to do. Because you always have to go back to, to the context. What is the context? Context, context, context. 
Who was Peter writing to? He wasn't writing to all people. So he says all people here, not willing that any will perish. You have to remember, first of all, Peter's writing this letters, writing this letter to Christians. Um, I think it's in, in 2 Peter 1, 1, he tells us, Simon Peter, servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith, who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. That's the, the, the greeting, the introduction. He's writing to those who have obtained an equal standing. He's writing to Christians. Um, his whole letter is about encouraging them that false teachers have come into their ranks. Look, you have false teachers among you. And verses 1 through 9, well, second chapter, he assures them that false teachers will face condemnation. Um, and then he talks about the day of destruction and judgment in 3.17. But then 3.9, the passage is taken, says, look, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved and come to repentance. He's speaking to those who are dealing with the false teachers. He's talking to the Christians who are dealing with these false teachers that are coming in um, who who want to trip you up. So if I, if I was a false teacher, I would come in and I'd want to trip you up. But I wouldn't do it in a way that sounds mean or bad. I would do it in a way that sounds very nice. I would appeal to your better half. I would appeal to your sense of you know true justice, fairness, love. And that's exactly what's happening in many churches today. So you have many ministers that are appealing just to, you know, we, we, we want to be nice to everybody. We want people to like us. We want to make sure that, you know, people are, are very comfortable in their in their lives and whatever with whatever they do. So that's he people are coming into the church like that. And to give in to that false teaching, like many people do, that that's a real temptation. But the point here is is not like he's warning them not to give in to the false teaching, but instead to come to repentance. In other words, to keep the faith. Okay? So he's talking to the to the Christians who he's writing to then. But he's talking to us now. This is for us throughout the ages. So he's talking to all Christians. Does this make sense to you? There's always going to be false teachers. You have to be discerning. There's always going to be somebody who's come in to tell you what you want to hear that isn't straight Bible, that is not biblical, and it's going to get you off track. But here's where, he's, where he says that, that he's not willing for any of us to perish, any of the people that he's writing to. That's... All, he's talking about all the Christians for all time. He said he's slow, to, not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So even if you're taken off track, that you would come back to him, right? Like Peter. Peter sinned against, who wrote this letter, sinned against him, but he was restored back to him. So, so the idea here is not giving in to false teaching, but coming to repentance Keeping the faith, going for all all of his people. So instead of saying God's waiting for everybody to be saved, that's not what he's teaching here. He's This is like assurance of salvation that you as a Christian are going to persevere in faith. He's going to wait patiently. He's patient with us, right? He's not going to let us get away from him. And as, as we are being challenged and tested, as we look to him, even if we fall, as we come back to him, he's assuring us that we will 
our salvation is preserved, right? Because he's already writing to Christians, you're going to be tempted, you're going to be tested, but you're not going to fall away. So this is actually a passage of real great assurance. Does that make sense to you guys? That's what he's really talking about. But a universalist will say, no, 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 no. He's not willing for anybody to die. He was, everybody's going to be saved. Question or comment? No, I was going to say about if, if, if everything was fine, why does he have to come like a thief suddenly? Yeah. Exactly. And that's why we have to be on guard. You know, if everything was just fine, like why is he come like he's gonna come like a thief in the night, suddenly, without are you ready for that? Right? And that way to be ready is to be faithful. And at that at that time, he's not going to let us fall away completely and fully, in other words. He's not willing for any of us to perish. We cannot lose our salvation. That's what he's talking about here. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to wait till everybody's saved. You know, I'm like, you know, that, in that way. That's not, that doesn't even make sense because people die apart from him, but, you know, universally they go to heaven anyway. But this is the idea that he doesn't want anybody to perish. Huh? That word all there is this, in the Greek is the same word that Jesus said when he said, all that the Father has given that's me right. to come to me. It doesn't mean every human being. And that's and that's so important because that's why we want to try to know the original languages or as much as that if we can. Because like with different words that are translated so that we can understand them, in Greek there's different meanings, different nuances. You have to take it in context. It says, you know, mean different things. And that's exactly so. These are all the ones that God gave to him. That's the exact same word that you use because there's several different words for all. Just like for love in, in the Bible. There's several different words for love. We see it as love. It says love. But we need to understand the context. What kind of love is that? Is that uh, an agape kind of love? Is that a philios love? Is that a brotherly love? You know, what? How's that being used? That's why it's important to be students of the word. It really makes helps make sense. So that's another big passage that people say, look, he wants everybody to go to heaven. It's not at all what he's talking about. All who believe in him are going to come to repentance, are going to be preserved by him. Right? He's not willing for any of us to perish. I won't lose one of them. He'll leave the 99 to get the one. All the Father has given to me, I will preserve. Same word, same thing. So... But it's tricky, you know, when somebody says, well, there it is, the plain reading of the text. Well, you know, not really. So uh, a couple more. Um, we'll do Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We'll just go back to Philippians. And it's and it's interesting because they, they want... It's frustrating, too, because they want to use our very word against us. You know, it's not like they're coming with a word from outside, like even with the Book of Mormon, and incorporate some scripture, but it's different. Um, and they have other important books that they use, Pearl of Great Price and so forth. But with these folks, they'll come with our own Bible and say, see, here's what the Bible says. But they're doing such an injustice to it, and they're not concerned to really, really look at it in context. And that's a that's a big deal. Um, and so, so when somebody starts quoting the Bible to you guys, that's when you have to say, okay, well then, are you really willing to sit down and really, really look at this? If you are, a, that's good. If not, you know, you give them what you have, but because a lot of people aren't really truly interested in what it actually teaches. That's such a frustration for pastors. 
People, when they want to hear, somebody comes and says, what does the Bible say about how do I need to live my life? They usually come and say, well, I have my life, and doesn't the Bible say I can do this or get away with that? Or, you know, it's like, ah, keeps you up at night. But anyway, um, Philippians chapter 2, let me get to that. And here's, here's another beautiful passage. Paul said, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, um, obviously this is Christ emptying himself, coming down, making himself a servant, one of us. He said, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so what would you say to that? It says right there, Universalist is going to come to you and say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the earth. And when he comes, under the earth, those who perish um, in heaven, acknowledge him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if a universalist comes to you with that, says, see, there it is. Every every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. At one point, everybody's going to be saved. Now, what do we say to that? Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't mean they're doing it willingly. That's right. That's very right. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean they'll do it willingly. Um, this goes back to Isaiah 45. We're not going to take the time to go back there, but... In Isaiah, it talks about the entire one day the entire world is going to know that he's God and that there is salvation in nobody else, that he is sovereign over all peoples and all nations. And that found its fruition in Christ Jesus. That's what this is speaking to here. Every knee will bow in salvation. Uh, every knee will bow. But how's every knee going to bow? If you love Jesus Christ today, how are you going to bow before him? When you see Jesus, what are you going to do, presumably? Just... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pull an Isaiah, we'll pull a Peter, you know, depart from me, you know, we'll, we'll be bowing down before him in adoration that you are our God. You know, we're just going to be driven to our knees in that way as those who are, are loved by him and we will confess his name. You are Lord, you are King of Kings, you are Savior, we love you and we'll bow the knee in adoration, we'll praise him, we'll worship him. And remember in the Gospels, even when he, when they, when he was worshipped, he received that worship. He never said, you know, Thomas, get up, I'm just a man. He, he received worship. Um, and we'll worship him in that way as believers. Um, but, and this goes back also to the Isaiah passage, his enemies are also going to bow to him. How, why would his enemies bow down to him? In what manner would they bow to him? Yeah, they're 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 a defeated foe. Now they're going to know that he's Lord. They're still not going to believe in him, but they're they are going to recognize involuntarily still bow the knee to him, even though they don't accept him as a defeated foe. Do you know a place in Scripture that shows that so beautifully? It gives a foretaste of that. When they came to arrest Jesus, and he said, who do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus. And he said, I am he, and he fell back. Yes. Go to John 18. I just got shivers. Go to John 18. And this gives us a beautiful picture. That these guys were no friends of Jesus. 
They came with swords and with clubs. They weren't submitting to him. They, this, they're going to be, it's not just like, it's not going to be, you know, when an army defeats their foes and they're, they're being, you know, in their chains and they come before the king and they just, you know, bow down, almost forced to bow, you know, bow. It's not going to be like, they're just automatically going to bow because they know in their heart of hearts that he is the king even though they still reject him. So in John 18, do you have that passage? Why don't you just read it for us? Uh, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. You see that? That's how they're going to respond to Christ. We're going to go down on our knees because he's Lord and we know we can't wait to get on our knees. His enemies also are going to bow the knee to him and they're going to know that he's the Lord. And that's exactly what happened in John. And that's very dramatic picture. It's not that Jesus just went like this or quit bow. The idea is that they went like flat on their face. Like just, they just fell down. Just like, they couldn't help but recognize and know that he's Lord and they bow down in submission to him because of who he is. And that's what this is talking about here. It's not that everybody one day is going to come to the enlightened place, bow the knee, and love Jesus and be saved universally. It's going to be, you're going to bow out of loyalty and love for Christ or in submission, still knowing that he's Lord, just like these guys did, but still rejecting him. So that's that really explains this um, that passage, it's not a universalistic passage. It just isn't. So it doesn't take a lot, but you're going to need people willing to listen to you, sit down with you, take time with you in this kind of thing. But I want you to understand, I don't want you to be thrown off, you know, like, oh, my faith is shaking now because these people are saying this. Could this be true? No, no. If it just takes a little time to get in the scriptures. And even if you don't talk to them, that you yourself know this, like we're doing this tonight, that you understand. So when somebody comes to you, and even if you don't answer them at that point, you still know in your heart of hearts what the truth is, if they're not willing to listen to you or go along. Because it's important that you have this in your heart as well. Because you can't just say, well, no, you know, well, I guess every knee will bow to What's that mean? You know, then that might confuse you or, you know, shake you up a little bit. And that's a lot what people want to do. Don't let that happen. There's not a passage that the universalist can point to when it's examined in the context of scripture that can that can rock your faith that goes against what actually is being taught. So we're just giving a few examples. We'll give one more tonight and that'll be it. Um, and that's uh, Romans 5.18. There's a lot more that we can go to, but let's just go over to Romans chapter 5 and talk to this, speak to this one. All right, so this is having, uh, the whole context is how we're, we're made right with God, coming off of justification in chapter 4, having peace with, um, with, who, with God um, and, and his righteousness. And then beginning in verse 12, he talks about, he makes the, the comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ. And he says this, I'll begin in verse 12 to 18. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more having have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the res- is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus. Therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. I'm going to stop right there. Do you see that? So, the, so what are the universalists going to say, especially verse 18? Um, he, look, all men, all men died in Adam. All men live in Christ. So that's all. Again, we have to think about the word all, but even if you don't know that, that's for, from, from what's being said here, we need to, to be able to um, let people know what is actually going on in this, in this portion of Scripture. So, Because he also talks about many. The many are made, the many. Is that not everybody? Is that The idea behind this whole section here is about representation. Okay, who is represented by Adam? Many people or all people? See, these words, this, these are used kind of interchangeably. But when you think about who Adam represented, he represented all of us. All of us have sinned in Adam. So each and every person born by ordinary generation has fallen in Adam. So we could trace our lineage all the way back to Adam, our sinfulness all the way back to the garden. When Adam fell, we fell with him. We're born in sin. We're sinners by nature and choice because we're in Adam. So he represents all of us in that idea of being fallen. Does that make sense? Do you know anybody who's not a sinner besides Jesus? Any other person? Because we all go back to Adam. So this passage, even though he might use many or all in different different uh, um, passages, the idea, the the overall idea is representation. Who was represented by Adam? Every single person ever born. We can all trace our lineage back. We know this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under the same curse. We all suffer death. You know, that's part of that, the curse in that way. Um, so that's the idea. Who did Jesus Christ represent? Guys, you can say it. We're reformed. <laughs> the elect. The elect. Ah, the elect. <laughs> Ah, don't say that word. <laughs> his people, his sheep. We talked about this on Sunday. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They will come to me. No one can come to Father. No one can come to the Father to me unless my Father in heaven draws him, brings him, drags him, takes him. all those, all those ideas. 
of everybody who is who's saved. So that's that's the idea here. Christ represents that whole group of people. Matthew 121. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I'm saying every single person from his people from their sins. Of course, Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. We were chosen in him when before the foundation of the world. And in, in love, we were predestined to life in Christ. Um, and, and Christ died for us. Uh, Romans 3, 21, 22. Revelation 7, 9, 10. So the idea here is, is about representation. If Christ did represent every single person in the world, then that's right. There would be universal salvation. And we wouldn't have to be here tonight. And why would we live anywhere? If, if salvation is universal, I guess the idea behind it is like since God is so good and he is going to save you, don't you want to live your best life now in that way? Why, you know, out of gratitude in that way to God that you know you're going to be saved. But even if you're not, you know, he's still going to save you. So one of my questions is why wouldn't you just go with your natural inclinations and do what feels good, do what feels right, do what feels okay because God's going to love you anyway. You know what I mean? Um, but this is this that's the big idea here is representation. Don't get caught up on the many and the all in this. It's just who is represented by Adam? All of us in our sin. That's easily proven. Who is represented by Christ? All those who would come to faith. All those whom the Father gave to him. Not each and every single person did Christ represent. Um Otherwise, everybody would come to faith in Christ. So uh, that's 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 what we, we want to talk about in this passage. Now we could just go on all night. I just wanted to give these few just for um, just for your edification, just to help you out, because this is the kind of thing that we want to do to help people out. Again, with all humility, generally, most people won't buy in or believe you, and that's okay. You know, it's not it's I mean, it's not okay, but it's not. You know, we're not we're not trying to be haughty in any way or, or when and and when it's right if people are truly interested you know like sometimes we want to make them interested and try to force this on them we can't do that you know we all know that we we can talk about our own family members you can't do that you could try and we could be there with them and ready to do this but as the lord gives us opportunity but even for your own edification your own sake have this because the challenges are abounding today to our faith in this way, you know, like this, this whole idea of hell is not a popular idea, not a popular teaching whatsoever, and then even in most churches. And so that's why I wanted to do this is kind of give you those handles on this and see the seriousness of it, the reality of it, and hopefully encourage you to be more um, motivated, I guess, to, to preach the gospel as the Lord gives us opportunity. Um, to, to others because we know what's at stake. So, any more questions or any anything else on this? Comments? Okay. Pretty tough. Pretty tough study, but I think it's pretty good. Mikey Moss. Yeah, I do have a question. So, whenever it comes to like false teachers and people who are preaching the Bible incorrectly and interpreting it and interpreting it in their own way. I forget what part of the Bible it says, but all people of authority are placed there by God. And why would God want people in authority to preach his word incorrectly? 
to people who new believers and yeah, I, I yeah, I know. I know. Well, they're there by God's authority, just like people in any other position that you're in. Whatever that, whatever the calling is or the vocation is, you're still there. The the onus on us and, and what's incumbent upon us is to make sure that we are teaching Scripture. It's not like God saying, "Okay, I'm going to put you there." We still have responsibility. So you know, in God's sovereignty and His plan, there's a purpose for all that happens. But our concern, especially Mikey, is to say we want qualified teachers because we're warned in Bible in, in the Scripture because he says, look, false teachers are going to come. They're going to come in. You need to be careful. They're going to try to take you away from the faith, and they're going to. So that prompts us to be discerning. So if, if you wanted to be in leadership as a church, you need to be careful who you put up there. Right? That's why they have qualifications in First Timothy and in Titus. Right? They say, look, here are these qualifications for elders. You need to make sure that they meet these qualifications and that they're called by, like, you could discern that kind of calling if God is really calling them to that. Because a lot of people are placed in, they're not truly called as pastors, but they're accepted as pastors. If you're in any profession that you're not called in, you're not going to be very successful ultimately. Like you're, Leela's a called to be a teacher. That's why she's such a wonderful teacher. She's called. You know, she has that gift. But that needs to be nurtured, examined, and then you're placed in that position of authority and over that. Now, some person who's not really called to teach, but oh, I just need to teach because I need a job. You know, I don't even like kids. I don't even want to. And they're not going to be great teachers. You can say about doctors, nurses, all down the line. So it's not that God's saying, here, I'm going to put you in here. God gives us a standard for who is going to teach. And it's up to us to say, you know what? This guy, he's, he's got the, he meets the qualifications that the Bible has. He's teaching correctly. We could follow him. But you have to be discerning because there might be other people with other motives. We've seen it. You know, Don, I know through the years um, how many guys come in. Some people are expected to be preachers. You know, I talking to somebody the other day. He's not called to the ministry. He's a wonderful man. He's not called to the ministry, but his parents wanted him to be a preacher. And so I'm like, you know, we're gonna we want you to be a preacher. They get in there, and they, they're not called or qualified. Some people do it because Christians believe anybody. You guys were sheep. <laughs> There's a reason for that. So they'll they'll be shysters. So it, it is up to it's incumbent upon us to know and to make sure that we get the right teachers in there in that way. So it's not like God's saying, here, go do that. God gives us the standard to say, this is what these teachers need to look like. This is what the result should be, generally speaking, you know, for the most part. If that's not it, that's a false teacher. If they're not teaching you the word, we should not follow them. Right, Don? Do you want to add anything to that? Somebody asked me a similar question years ago. And I said, in Proverbs, it says you have to seek out truth like you would search for fine gold. In searching for gold, you have to, you know, you just get those little bits. You have to search for truth. That's our responsibility, to search for the truth, to find it out. You know, it just doesn't, God doesn't plug in a, a CD. Or, yeah, that's one of them uh, 
discs and download all the information into your head. You have to yeah. you have to search the scriptures. You have to search it, man. And that's and so it also depends on what a church wants, Mike. Sometimes a church wants to grow. So they're going to get a pastor. They're going to have a profile of a pastor instead of saying based on what the Bible teaches that he teaches the Bible seriously, that he's a godly man, that he's a good shepherd, all those kinds of things. They want a person, I want this church to grow. So you could be flashy, you could be charismatic leader, and and God's going to give you that. Like, you know, if you're, if you're God's not going to say, okay, no, you can't have that one. We're, we're to follow what the scriptures teach when you put people in positions of authority. That's one of the biggest downfalls in any place, but especially in the church because of the, the gravity, you know, the spiritual weight of it. It's an easy gig for a lot of pastors. If you're charismatic, you don't, you don't have to work too much. You don't have a lot of accountability a lot of times. You can do a lot of things. A lot of these pastors are, are shysters living off their people. That's why I try to be accountable to our elders and to our congregation. You guys have full access to me. You know, there's, we're not on high. It's, it's a, you know, it's a lot of, and Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians. There, there's there's a lot of people that come with not the purest motives, and they come as shysters, and they'll they'll try to fleece you. So we need to be sure that we're holding them to a biblical standard to get them in. Anything else? Good question. I know sometimes God he raises, he raises up, but there's always a fault. The devil's always battling too to get the wrong ones in there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much. Thank you for this series, Lord God. I just pray that it's helped familiarize or, or to help reacquaint us, Lord God, with this with this doctrine, this neglected doctrine uh, and teaching, Lord God, um, and one that has been so misconstrued and, and changed over the years um, as if we're embarrassed by it, Lord, and, and we should not be. We should, we should hold it and, and with the esteem that it deserves, Lord God. It speaks to your... Holiness, righteousness, your love for your holiness, righteousness, and justice, Lord God, um, and is perfectly consistent with who you are. So I just pray that um, as we've learned more about this, that we'll be better equipped, Lord, to, to speak to others, but even in our own hearts, even more sure of of this teaching and, and why it's, it's part of Scripture, Lord God, and why it's so important for us to know. So, Lord, just uh, thank you for again for the participation and just pray, Lord, as we have opportunity to speak to others that we'll be able to give good answers, Lord, at least challenging ones that help people help people to wrestle with these these truths and these ideas, Lord God. So please bless us. Uh, see us safely to our homes this evening. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus name.